days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Oh boy. You know it's going to be good when we start out with the very loaded word, but, at the beginning of the sentence, just like we did last time, actually, means that we have to time travel backward to what went before it, which we will do in a bit. This week we're going to be talking a lot about apocalyptic phrases or idioms that are easily misunderstood and abused. We went through this in part for the excursus program, which was episode 120. Uh, but now we are going to take all that apocalyptic imagery language and look at it in this context. So there will be some review and some new material. And we're going to be referring to Isaiah a lot. Because Mark quotes and refers to Isaiah more than all the other prophets combined, which doesn't shock us because Mark does portray Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, as the Yahweh warrior, the arm of the Lord, and the suffering servant figure of Isaiah. Which is why I taught so extensively on Isaiah 40 through 56 before we started this series, like what, two years ago? <laughs> no, no, it was over a year ago. It wasn't two years ago. This is only episode 59 <laughs> um, of this. Um, and we're going to be talking about the historical context of coming in the clouds, which is an idiom that gets thrown around a lot in Christian rapture circles, but when stood as an actual theophany, a visible appearance of deity gives us an entirely different meaning than they would have understood. Oh, hello. I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have like six years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. Oh, and by the way, you know, Context for Kids, I don't... Kids aren't stupid. Kids are smart. All you got to do is slow stuff down for them. And sometimes you've got to omit, omit some stuff. But, you know, kids are smart. They deserve better than flannel graphs. <laughs> Anyway, um, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through 
his Messiah. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. You actually have my permission, which I know is just such a relief to you. Now, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, let's start this out. We're in uh, Mark chapter 13, and we're next week will be the end of Mark. Next week's going to be pretty snarky. <laughs> it is. Oh, boy. Now, um, well, we're going to start in verse 24 this week. But in those days, after that tribulation. Um, and so we're going to stop right there. In those days, and after that tribulation, are referring to what? The exact same event we've been talking about since verse 2. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And if you've been following along, you've been hearing a lot about the severe tribulation of that time. Jewish revolutionaries and bandits slaughtered more of their own people than the Romans ever dreamt of. Um, Starvation, mock trials, execution of political rivals, you name it. Remember, when Yeshua lowered the boom on that, they asked, you know, two questions. When will it happen, and what will be the signs that it's about to happen? Yeshua hasn't diverted away from that subject. He's still answering their questions in language that they're going to be familiar with, but we need to look, we need to work at it, okay? They grew up here in this stuff, and they knew the gist of it. We make a lot of assumptions and really read a ton into it that, They wouldn't have seen, and we cannot forget that they were the primary audience and not us. And this was before the the crucifixion, all right? We're eavesdroppers. Eavesdroppers who speak not only a foreign language, but also a different cultural language as well. When we see phrases like, in those days or in that day, we're looking at judgment language due to the current apostasy of the people in some way or another. In that day and at that time means that Yahweh is acting in a definitive way in history. When Yahweh decrees that his people will be a certain type of people, or rather when Yahweh declares through one of his prophets that in those days such and such, you know, will be true, it's not a time to wait for him to take action. Yahweh is declaring his desire and we are to live in it and toward it, or else. Now also, Yahweh never declares a destruction that cannot be avoided, even when it is couched in absolutes. Never. If if everyone turns and does what is right from the top down, it just won't happen. When we see in those days, it means the kingdom of heaven has been forced to intervene, and that is never the best option. Nothing is ever set in stone. Not exactly, because we always see Yahweh willing to accept repentance when he finds it. If the leadership, after the resurrection, had changed their tune and had installed Yeshua as king in the temple, then it never would have been destroyed. So, I mean, that's just my opinion, but it's based on patterns in scripture. I mean, if he forgave Nineveh, how much more so? The Jews, right? So with predictions, we have to understand that they never represent what God wants, but what God is driven to do. 
we're going to look at a whole bunch of um, in those days and at that time language from um, the Hebrew scriptures. Start out in Jeremiah 3, verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers for a heritage. Now, a prophecy like this, and this is a good one, right? We like this one. This is like, yeah. There was never any reason why it couldn't have been at least imperfectly fulfilled in absolutely any generation. Yahweh is always willing to give his people loyal shepherds if their hearts are set on that. He is always willing to multiply and prosper his people. Jerusalem always could have been the Lord's throne. All nations could always have been gathered to it. But there's that stubbornness. Fortunately, we don't have any of that ourselves. It was only those guys, right? <clears throat> um, so, anyway, it's... It's now, and we'll find its fulfillment in Yeshua, God's perfect image, because we humans don't even try without that divine infilling, okay? So we've, we've got this time now that we're living in. It's like one of those here and not yet, okay? Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33. You know this one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Again, great one, but it's talking about an intervention. Zechariah eight twenty three. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take, yeah, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And although you can say, well, this is clearly about the reign of Yeshua and the last days and times, it would be correct. But if you were to say that the last days and end times refers to the future from now, you would not be reflecting scripture. The world has been living in the last days slash end times ever since heaven invaded earth in the person of Yeshua and began to implement the reign of the heavens, which will someday take over the entire earth again, a here and not yet. Oh, right now we have been in the birth pangs for a long time, and it is a painful process. The birthing of this worldwide dominion of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I guess we could see, you know, the end times were, are, and shall be. <laughs> uh, let's see, uh, verse 24. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, we're back to Mark 13 now. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. So we've already covered um, some instances of in those days. And as that refers to Yahweh acting decisively for judgment, you know, which is a neutral term, not necessarily negative. The next phrase that says after that tribulation, what tribulation is that? Although, you know, many try to travel through time in order to link it up with Revelation 7.14, which refers to a great tribulation where many saints have been martyred and make that into a future seven or three and a half year time period. The tribulation being spoken of here is simply the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem, and much of the land of Israel by the Romans between the years 66 and 70 of the Common Era. Remember, we cannot remove this from the immediate context of verse 3, with the question as to when the prophesied destruction of the temple in verse 2 would occur and what would be the signs. And there hasn't been a single useful sign given. Indeed, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that isn't a useful sign either. You had to be long since gone. Um, the prophetic language of the sun being darkened, moon not shining, stars falling, and power shaken... This is figurative language that signifies abject terror and confusion. If we try to make it literal, we are taking it out of context of the original audience. The sense of this is cosmic, not scientific. And by cosmic, I mean dealing with how earthly things look behind the veil in terms of apocalyptic imagery. If you've read Second Temple period apocalypses like Enoch or Revelation, then you see this over-the-top language referring to how things would look to us if we could see them from the throne room and not obscured here, where we don't really understand what's going on. We're just subject to... Their, you know, they were just subject to things, and we don't see them as God sees them. Let's put it that way. Now... Everything is described in these earth-shattering and cataclysmic terms, and that's actually an excellent example. If I told you that I had an earth-shattering announcement to make tomorrow, you wouldn't call me a liar unless, of course, I was just going to tell everyone I'm getting a pet parakeet. You would know that, you know, I'm not making a prophetic announcement that the earth will, in fact, be shattering. It's an expression that to us means a major upheaval. And even that is ironic because upheaval refers to the Earth's crust being forced upward due to an earthquake. Every culture has these over-the-top terms that describe major events in terms of cataclysms. The Bible's no different. Why should it be? These were functional cultural expressions for impending disaster. When we take them scientifically seriously is, you know, when the trouble happens. Oh, all right. So these were all the same terms used previously for actually the fall of Babylon in the 6th century. Now, did the sun and moon and stars implode or fall or whatever at that time? No. 
It's just judgment language. Just imagine if it was happening for real, okay? Think of the unimaginable panic, you know, shock and alarm. That's what this language is describing. The cosmic terms are important because, you know, as with the fall of Babylon, this is divine judgment against a corrupted institution that was meant to foster worship and care for the least of these and draw the nations. But instead, it became a business compromised by prejudice, greed, corruption, collaboration with Rome. And these are worse than idolatry. Okay, at least idolatry is well-intentioned, okay? People don't commit idolatry maliciously. They really think it's going to work. This is just pure opportunism. What else does this language tell us? This is a picture of suddenness. All of a sudden, destruction's raining down on them. But what's the cause of this destruction? Well, he hasn't told them about that yet. Sure, I've been blabbing about it, but he hasn't told them yet. That's about to change. Verse 26, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Okay, what is it that they see? The Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. But what the heck does that mean? Three things here. The Son of Man... The biblical phenomena of what coming in the clouds actually means to them, and also what it is to come with great power and glory. This is uh, another instance where being unfamiliar with the language of the rest of the Bible leads people to ideas that this is describing a rapture. Now let's tackle the Son of Man first because it's been a while. Uh, the Son of Man is mentioned 14 times in this gospel if we don't include, you know, little title headings, which we should never include because those were added by translators. That doesn't count. And sometimes they're not really good. <laughs> um, I think we did an entire teaching on this for part one of this series. That's how important it is, okay? Although the Son of Man reference goes back to Daniel 7.14, it's never used as a title until Yeshua or the narrator uses it to describe why he has the legitimate authority to forgive sins on earth, as we saw in chapter 2 in the healing of the paralytic. After that, it's often invoked when Yeshua's authority to do something is challenged on legal grounds, you know, well, more on traditional grounds, actually, or he's describing his fate, you know, a.k.a. his mission. Son of Man really seems to be Yeshua's preferred self-designation instead of Messiah, and the reason's not that difficult to grasp. By the first century, Mashiach, translated as Messiah and meaning anointed one, same meaning as Christos in the Greek, in terms of the Mashiach and not one of the many Mashiach spoken of in scripture, had become so loaded a term that if he had used it to describe himself, there would have been way too much baggage attached, all right? To most first century Jews, the Mashiach was the coming conquering heir of King David who would destroy Rome's armies and put the Jews back on top as in the days of David and Solomon. To give an analogy, it's hard now to use the word myth to describe the creation account even though it is the proper term. 
To modern people, myth now means fairy tale. But that's not the correct definition. A myth is merely, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon. As such, an awful lot of the Bible that, you know, cannot be proven historically qualifies, whether it's true or not. Notice the definition says ostensibly historical, and the word ostensibly means that it is claimed true but cannot be proven. Like the flood and the creation story are presented as factual but cannot possibly be proven, and especially in the case of the flood where there is not any scientific evidence of for alluvial flood deposits in all of the world but only here and there, and only 68% or I mean, I'm sorry, only 68 worldwide flood accounts exist in different cultures, making up only a bit more than 1% of world cultures. Now, so if you've heard that one about, you know, every culture has a, no, only 68. And there are like maybe 7,000, somewhere between five and 7,000 cultures, depending on how you count the languages. So now if I was to walk into the Creation Museum and call the flood account a myth, there might be violence because people won't appreciate the nuance of the term myth any more than if I said Yeshua was gay, meaning happy, like at the festivals, and there might be violence. Um, definitions don't matter. Perception does, sadly. They won't care what I was saying. They would care how it sounded. And if you forgot why I brought this up, because I actually forgot why I brought this up, it's a good thing I have a script, it's because the term Messiah had become like that. It no longer simply meant anointed one, it meant a whole host of preconceived expectations. As you all know, if you've been following this series from the beginning, Yeshua repeatedly had to divest his young disciples of their messianic expectations. They're messed up. They're messy messianic expectations. Which brings us to the Son of Man, a more vague term from Daniel 7 describing the human in the throne room of God who was given his own throne and therefore more than human. Starting in verse 13, let's look at that. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, even, even Rabbi Akiva saw this as a second Yahweh. He got in trouble for it. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know if I have this anywhere in here. I have this other places. Um, but he got in trouble for saying that this was a second Yahweh in the throne room. Now, why do I say, whoops, oh, no, we got time. <laughs> Why do I say more than human when, when I'm talking about, you know, because mere humans do not come on the clouds of heaven in scripture. Yahweh does in judgment. Now, throughout the scripture, coming in the clouds speaks of a visitation of judgment, which, of course, can be good or bad. 
We aren't literally talking about real clouds. That's apocalyptic symbolism for a cosmic event. You know, something that happens on the divine side of things that we only see the results of. Um, yeah, we're going to have to... <laughs> oh, i got all these verses. Uh, I'm going to have to pause. You know, that's the terrible thing. You know, it's impossible to kind of plan exactly where you're going to have to cut off these darn things. But we're going to do a lot of verses talking about coming on the clouds and how they um, refer to Yahweh. And so like a lot of the things we saw in Isaiah, this is going to be Yeshua referring to himself in, let's call it Yahweh language. Be right back. And welcome back. Uh, welcome to the second half of this week's Character in Context, where we are talking about the coming in the clouds. And we're going to talk about the parable of fig tree. They like figs. Actually, I like figs too, got to admit. <laughs> but first of all, we're dealing with the coming in the clouds. And we are about to talk about um, some coming in the clouds scriptures. And like I just said, we aren't literally talking about real clouds. This is apocalyptic symbolism for a cosmic event, which is something that happens on the divine side of things that we can only see the results of. Let's look at Isaiah 19.1, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. The coming of the clouds here is specifically associated with a visitation that brought civil war upon Egypt. And later in Nahum 1.3, we see another visitation mentioning clouds against Nineveh. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Obviously, this is not literal, but specifically a divine function. When Yeshua claims that the Son of Man will come on the clouds, he is making what scholars call a high Christological claim. If you're unfamiliar with that term, as we all were at once, <laughs> um, high and low Christology refer to claims made in Scripture that either focus on Yeshua as the divine Son of God, a.k.a. High Christology, or as Yeshua the human, a.k.a. low Christology. But don't get the idea that you have to choose one or the other. The Gospels very much support both, although John is very, very, very much focused on high Christology. So anyway, this is another case where Yeshua is making not only a messianic claim, but a claim to be divine. It's just hidden to us because we're not as familiar with the lingo. We all got to learn this stuff. Now, coming with great power and glory isn't too hard to explain. And again, harkens back to Daniel 7, where the, com the Son of Man comes on the clouds and is given a throne and an everlasting dominion. And he's coming on the clouds because this is a judgment 
a vindication of his wrongful execution and rightful claim to not only the throne of David, but also to his claims of being the Messiah. Coming in the clouds means that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 of the Common Era was not actually at the hands of the Romans, but was every bit as much at the hands of Yahweh as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple under the Babylonians. Like the Babylonians, who were the world's greatest superpower of their age, the Romans are likewise simply tools in the hands of Yahweh to enact his judgment against the corrupted temple and the leadership of his people. And the disciples are again being warned, uh, you know, when they see this happening, there will be no reprieve because at that point it will be too late. This is judgment against an institution and the leadership, not against an entire people group. After all, the Jews in the Parthian Empire, not like anything happened to them. All right. Now, when the temple was destroyed and uh, over the course of the three wars against the Romans, where the Jewish hopes of restoring Jerusalem and becoming an independent power again under a conquering Messiah were finally destroyed um, and they were expelled for good or for bad, you know, just it's an idiom in 135 of the Common Era, and Jerusalem was finally converted to a fully realized pagan city dedicated to Jupiter. Oh, I went out and weed whacked during the break here. <laughs> I'm so sniffing again. I don't take allergy meds because they just make me tired. Uh, not worth it. Rather sniff and torture you with that. Um... So there can be no Jewish kingdom under God unless it's under Messiah. You know, Yahweh loves his people too much to allow it, which is why the current state of Israel is contested. And don't mistake this for dispensationalism, because I don't believe that a reformed Israel will usher in any sort of Antichrist. That's a relatively new belief historically that's caused nothing but grief for real people in the Middle East and a lot of bad fruit among believers who are pushing for it to happen just to try and force their imagined timetable. And I know that makes people mad. Great book by a woman named Barbara Rossing that everyone should read called The Rapture Exposed, The Message of Hope in the Book of Revelation. She got her doctorate from Harvard, um, and she is a professor at LST in Chicago. I recommend this book a lot and always get people coming back to me raving about how much they loved it and how it was a game changer for them. Okay, uh, Mark 13, verse 27. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Again, this is often assumed to be rapture language, but the context here is coming in the clouds in judgment for the purpose of the vindication of the Messiah and for those with ears to hear, you know, an entire generation later, to realize the error of the previous generation's leadership and repent and declare Yeshua as Messiah. We have to keep coming back to that. We, uh, so we have the Son of Man sending out the angels, and this may not actually mean angels because the word simply means messengers. But still, even if the, who can send out angels or messengers except for Yahweh? No one. 
Although I have seen folks in charismatic and Pentecostal situations being pretty presumptuous and ordering angels around like slaves, but I don't think the angels are actually listening. And, you know, who even has elect to gather? Again, no mere human. But what does this mean? What is the meaning of the four winds? Well, it's an idiom meaning something like from north, south, east, and west. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven just means everyone who qualifies, no matter who they are. It's just an idiom. And um, to make it mean that people are in heaven waiting to be gathered is a big stretch, okay? We see a pattern in scripture where gathering is what happens to God's people when they repent and are either physically or spiritually regathered after being scattered. So let's start out in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. Psalm 50, verses 3 through 5. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Uh, Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who um, is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And of course, they use bring there instead of gather. But, you know, it's it's the same thing. Um, let's see. Uh Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Now, the Romans... They're going to be scattering the Judeans as well as the Galileans who took refuge in Jerusalem and in the temple, the ones that survived anyway. But at the same time, Yeshua is saying that he is going to be gathering. So the Romans will be scattering. At the same time, he, Yeshua will be gathering. And that's really significant that these things are happening at the same time. The Romans cannot scatter those who have been gathered because it isn't a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. Also, as Yeshua's followers, according to Eusebius, they fled to Pella and they were spared. As the Romans were destroying the city and the temple, Yeshua was continuing to build a spiritual temple 
where Yahweh could be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So, oh, if I were to restate these last two verses, um, use me the way I see it in 21st century language, just to get the sense of what I believe he's communicating. Of course, I can't make any guarantees because I wasn't there. Not that old. Despite what my kids say. Um, I'd say, um, and then they will see the judgment of the Son of Man as the Romans destroy the city of, and sanctuary, and he will be vindicated gloriously and shown to be wrongfully condemned. And as the Romans scatter, the Son of Man will send out his messengers to the ends of the earth, and they will preach his gospel from one end of the earth to the other, so that the elect can be gathered together as one body. That's, that's my take on it. Could be wrong. It's happened once or twice. <laughs> And I had to rewrite a book to prove it. Okay, so now that you are appropriately scandalized by my take on those verses, seemingly out of nowhere, we get this unexpected parable from Yeshua. And uh, as you might recall, only some parables are announced, but a parable is a story that conveys a deeper message than is immediately obvious. And it can be a straight parable or an allegory, and often... It will be disjointed and it won't make sense on its own, which causes us to think deeper. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I told it all at once before breaking it up because there's a lot to see here in four short verses still. The context is still the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The subject still has not changed. I want to start with the last line because if misused, it will change the whole meaning. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, this actually isn't a promise that the heaven and earth will one day pass away. This is actually an oath formula. We do see similar oaths um, elsewhere, both in the Bible and in other literature. Um, Matthew 5.19, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We also have this from 1 Samuel 14.39. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Now, because these are oaths, it does not mean that they are predictive. Oaths are not predictive, okay? They're promises. For Yeshua to make a reference to heaven and earth passing away, that isn't the salient feature of the oath. The enduring nature of what Yeshua is saying, that's the important things. Um, we might, in modern times, um, say something like, Ugh, everyone else's mom may stop loving their kids, but I will never stop loving you. That's the sense here. You wouldn't be predicting that people will start Stop loving their kids en masse. You're just declaring your eternal love for your kid, 
no matter what. But because of how it's worded and how um, it sounds to us in a society where we don't really do oaths or recognize oath formulas, we're more inclined to take it as predictive and boom, our minds are on some future tribulation again. But because of the content of what was said before it, we know that this is still referring to the destruction of the temple. In the same way, when Saul foolishly swears on the existence of Yahweh that he will kill whoever disobeyed his stupid directive not to eat until he had his revenge, okay, his failure to kill his son, you know, and his troops begged him not to. He was going to do it. That guy was just a piece of work. Anyway, his failure to kill his son was not indicative of the non-existence of Yahweh. Just because he says, as Yahweh lives, even if it's my son Joshua, he will not be spared. He didn't do it. That doesn't mean Yahweh doesn't live. It's not predictive. It's not a matter of, you know, if my son did it, then to prove Yahweh lives, I'm going to kill him. Or to prove Yahweh lives, he's going to make sure I kill him. That doesn't really work. Um... So it's an oath formula, not predictive. Yeshua is saying here, what I'm telling you here is absolutely true forever. Oh, verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. Now the fig tree is biblically a symbol of blessing and also traditionally tied to the reign of the Messiah. The fig tree is actually deciduous. Did you know that? And most trees native to Israel are not. Meaning, you know, it sheds its leaves every year. Uh, other trees, like the olive, pine, and cedar, which are native, are evergreen, keeping their leaves all year round. Or needles, whatever, you know. Um, fig trees grow to be about 20 to 30 feet tall, and so they're really huge. In addition, they are one of the seven species that were part of the milk and honey promises along with wheat, barley, dates, grapes, pomegranates, and olives. That's why, like, on um, the New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, it's traditional to have all of those. I don't know many people who really do barley, though, because it's like, <laughs> no thank you. <laughs> Double down on the wheat, okay? Well, not me. I don't eat wheat very often. Anyway, fig tree motifs were carved into the walls of the Holy of Holies. As far as verses considered by the rabbis to prophesy the Golden Age of Messiah, let's see, uh, this is 1 Kings 4.25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and his fig tree all the days of Solomon. How about Micah 4, verses 1 through 4? It shall come to pass in the latter days, see there's a little idiom for you, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, not literally, Again, figurative language, and all people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion 
shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So we have that fig tree again. For behold, uh, Zechariah 3, verses 9 through 10. <sighs> for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, and by the way, that's... um. That would be Yeshua in Aramaic. And this is the high priest whose name is the branch. So it's prophesying that the name of the Messiah would be Yeshua in, in a, another verse. Anyway, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day. Oh, we got that in that day. Declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so, um, they had all these verses linking the fig tree to the prosperity of the future Messianic age. But what happens when the Messiah is instead rejected and killed? Remember, all that predictive prophecy is conditional. At the first coming... Messiah was rejected, and so the Golden Age did not happen the way they assumed it would, because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. Goodness. You know, in our honest moment, we we have to admit that he wouldn't have been the Messiah we wanted either, if we were them. They wanted some comeuppance against the Romans, who were oppressing them and taxing them to death and killing them. But our failures aren't... The last word, because Yahweh is determined to see his Messiah enthroned as king. You know, it will happen. Now, when does the branch become tender and when does the fig leaf go or fig tree go into leaf? Sorry. Around the Passover season. And so that is when you know the theros, the summer harvest is near. It's a difficult word because it's only translated in, as summer in Bibles, but from the way the words used in the Septuagint, 300 years before, it's more related to the summer harvest. So when you see the tree getting ready to produce fruit, you know the summer harvest season is near. That's the parable, and now he's going to interpret it. Verse 29, so also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. What are these things? Well, Yeshua's been talking about what the signs are not. Not the earthquakes, not the wars, not rumors of war, not famines, not the persecutions. They're just the normal budding out of the tree months before the harvest comes. Or years, you know. But back to last week, when you see the abomination which causes desolation, which should be a neutral term in Greek, but it is twice now referred to with the male pronoun, then it is time for the harvest of Jerusalem and the temple has come, okay? Things would be ramping up politically and violently in the years leading up to the destruction. It would become increasingly obvious. You know, there weren't going to be any surprises. I mean, except for those people who would convince that 
you know, the signs were in their favor, like the comet that was shaped like a uh, a sword above Jerusalem. You know, the entire year before the destruction of the temple. Um, like I said, there's a reason Yeshua doesn't give signs. It's because signs are in the eye of the beholder. We always see in signs what we want to see, and so they're relatively useless. All right, um, verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, another oath formula here, that truly, that this generation, their generation, would not die out before it happened. And it would happen within 40 years. You know, um, it did. If it's referring to anything else, like some future tribulation, then it didn't happen, and Yeshua's oath was empty, and he's a false prophet. Um, so that's why we have to be really, really careful with, you know, seeing things in there. Um, it, it's become this, like, American religion obsession to see everything, to see so much in the Bible relating to a future tribulation that we it's hard for us to see the actual immediate context because we have been conditioned to see it elsewhere but and i mean that's a sad thing when i go over the amazon bestsellers list the books um that sell the most are not the responsible scholarly books from people who studied the bible for a living who are Old Testament experts and New Testament experts and Jewish literature experts and all that, but from people who are pastors who didn't necessarily even go to Bible college and who just, they look at the text and they see what they've been, what maybe they were taught to see by their pastors and, and sometimes it's pretty bogus. Anyway, uh, we'll see you next week for... <laughs> No one knows the day or the hour, except those guys on YouTube. Bye.